Hungry Trilobite podcast would like to start by acknowledging SoonerCon. Get ready for the next chapter in Oklahoma's longest-running fan-run pop culture convention. SoonerCon will be returning in 2024, June 21st through 23rd. Get ready for a weekend of cosplay, fun and excitement, vendors, gaming, and more. You can go to SoonerCon.com for more information. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today I'm welcoming Donnie Phillips to the show. Donnie is one part of a team that has created a new video game for the Nintendo Entertainment System, and we're going to get into that and why that's cool and why his game is cool. I will let you know that I was provided with a copy of the game by 8-Bit Legit, the publisher of the title on the Switch, for review purposes. And I really, really had a good time with it. Let's get started with Donnie right now. On tap today, we have Donnie Phillips. You are one half of the creative team behind a game called Project Blue. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, man. I'm looking forward to this. I have been having a lot of fun with Project Blue. It is a newer NES game. And that I think that bears a little bit of clarification because when it says it's newer, it's newer within the past three-ish years or so. And a lot of people don't really realize there have been games made for the NES since the 90s. So I think I should just say this is what you could call a homebrew game that a, a small team created, and we now have a wide release. And this is not as uncommon as you might think it is. Yeah, it's actually kind of a, a very fast-growing scene at this point in time, I feel like. It's, uh, I feel like when Project Blue came out, it was easy to kind of keep abreast of all the different projects in the scene. And in the last three years, it's really exploded in a way that's, I can't even keep up with it anymore. Games coming out of left field that I've never even heard of pretty regularly. And it's, yeah, it's a great, it's great to see um, so much love for uh, these old systems. To give it, if I understand correctly, you did your Kickstarter in 2020, is that right? I think I think we might have shipped in 2020. I think okay. the Kickstarter was at the end of 2019. Yeah, you you were saying it was about the past three years, and a lot of people were saying that Project Blue was kind of the first instance of a, a big wide release homebrew game that felt as well fleshed out as some of the classic titles of of the way back when. That it was like that that was the turning point. Yeah, I took a lot of inspiration from a couple projects that came before me that I feel like definitely laid the groundwork. Um, and I feel like, yeah, Project Blue just happened to come out at the right time um, where there was kind of a growing groundswell of, of interest in the system. And uh, I got lucky to work with uh, Ellen, who's Franken Graphics Online, who uh, did all the pixel art. And I think that definitely helped people uh, evaluate our game in a positive way because her art is so fantastic. Uh, for my end, I did a lot of work on um, trying to really emulate uh, the, the physics of classic NES games, particularly Super Mario Brothers. And um, one thing I really wanted was to, to have the feel of the game be very smooth and to have the controls feel really tight. And, um, and yeah, I feel like we did a good job with all of that. And it definitely helped people uh, evaluate our game positively. 
I mean, not to throw any shade on the games that came before that, but just for context, I remember homebrew NES games going back to like 99, 2000, and they were they were much more in the realm of what you call tech demos or home projects where it's like it's we were just proud to be able to do this and i i mean all the respect in the world for them because i can't do it i'll be very honest with you so you know not not trying to throw shit but it's like this was the first time was like project blue came along a lot of really really good games came right along with it to join the crowd and now we have these games coming out like every three to four months in some cases yeah i think um i think we just happen to be there at the right place in the right time and i you know of course i i think the game is good but uh i think a lot of it had to do with just uh kind of riding the coattails of some some things that had you know uh happened a few years prior i think micro mages came out around that time a little before us because i remember that we uh used their kickstarter campaign kind of as a a um a blueprint for ours in a way uh wanted to kind of copy their success as much as we could um but yeah my attempt with this game was to have it feel like one of the early nes titles um i think i first uh encountered an nes probably around 1987 or so so i was trying to make a game that would kind of have the same feel as Icarus, Metroid, and kind of those, that early batch of games. Mm -hmm. um, so without getting too crazy into the tech stuff, which I think a lot of people do, um, we just tried to keep the game itself very simple. And, um, and yeah, and I think that has a lot to do with its popularity because a lot of games from that time period are very simple and you can give a controller to a five-year-old and they'll figure out how to play on their own without any help, you know? And, um, and that's really satisfying to see for me because uh, I was that five-year-old kid at one point in time. And um, when I play modern games, I'm often very overwhelmed by the number of choices and things that can be done. And, um, and I feel like I end up just not really fully enjoying the games uh, on newer consoles as much. Uh, the indie games I enjoy, but the AAA games, they're just a little too much for me at this point. Um, so I just kind of wanted to bring back some of that joy and simplicity uh, of gaming that I feel like was really well encapsulated in the games from my youth. <clears throat> When I, if I were to describe the game, I would say it is, it's a platformer, a sci-fi based platformer. Um, the mechanics of it are very much in my mind in the realm of Mega Man with mm -hmm. a little Super Mario Brothers control issues thrown in there. And if anybody's familiar with the game Amagon, I would also say it's got some of that feel too. Amagon is not a really well remembered game, so I don't want to... I like it personally. So for mm. me, it's a compliment, but for coming from somebody else, it might not be. <laughs> I've actually never heard of that game. Um, yeah, there's a fair amount of, uh, I mean, it draws a lot of comparisons to Mega Man. And I see why, because your character is dressed in blue. You're fighting against robots. You shoot projectiles that seem to come out of nowhere uh, in a straight line, much as Mega Man does. Um, 
to be honest, all of that stuff is kind of coincidental. I never played Mega Man as a child. I have played it now, um, but it was, we had a very small library of NES games when I was a kid. Um, <clears throat> so a lot of that stuff is kind of coincidental. It's definitely mostly based on Super Mario Brothers or even the original Mario Brothers before mm -hmm. it was Super Mario. That makes a lot of sense. And a lot of people might not be familiar with that game. I'm not sure. It's um, single screen. There's no scrolling like in Project Blue. And so that's one of the reasons we used it as kind of a template. And um, the physics are very much based in Mario Brothers and Super Mario Brothers. Um, mm -hmm. and what that means is when you're running faster, you can jump higher. Um, your character has acceleration, so it takes a little bit for your character to start running at full speed um, as opposed to something like Mega Man where when you press right or left Mega Man immediately starts moving at full speed in that direction and when you take your finger off the controls immediately stops moving whereas Mario when you take your fingers off the controls he kind of slides for for a little bit it's a little slippery with the controls um, um, and that's the acceleration um, so yeah, mechanically it is very similar to Super Mario Brothers, but the, uh, the comparison to Mega Man also makes a lot of sense just with the set and the setting. And I like to say that he shoots like Mega Man, moves like Mario. He's smaller than both of them. So he's harder to hit. He's very fast. He's faster than Mega Man, a little bit slower than Mario because there's no scrolling. So you can't go too fast. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's very much in, in the vein of those two characters, for sure. Yeah, that's a good summary there. Um, and I would ask, which person on the team was a huge RoboCop fan? <laughs> Definitely me. I'm not okay. sure about Ellen, but I think she probably is as well. We have a, we've had a lot of conversations about uh, the various cyberpunk and dreampunk uh titles that were, you know, influential on us. And to be sure, um, a lot of those 80s sci-fi cyberpunk stuff definitely falls into that uh, category. For the opening scene, for example, uh, when you turn the game on and there's, you know, the press start screen, uh, the title screen. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> I sent Ellen a picture of, uh, still from the movie Alien, uh, at the beginning of the movie where they're all kind of in their life pods and being woken up and it's like, let's, let's have him, you know, in something like this. And so she's like, oh, that's one of my favorite movies. And, you know, we started really kind of hitting it off, uh, for my part, I'm a huge Terminator fan. That was my favorite movie when I was a little kid, which was maybe a little inappropriate for a young child, but that's how the 80s were. Um, I saw RoboCop for the first time at nine, so... Oh, I mean, yeah, it, I had this same exact conversation yesterday, so I was at the Portland Retro Game Expo, and someone was saying, I, I can't believe that RoboCop became a children's cartoon. That's actually really absurd to think mm -hmm. about. Because I went to, back to watch it in my uh, in my early 30s and was like, oh my god, <laughs> this is so violent and over the top. Um, and, but yeah, no, it's a huge, 
huge influence on me for sure. I love Paul Verhoeven, uh, the director of that movie in general. If uh, people aren't familiar, he's also the director of Starship Troopers and uh, Total Recall, which are both sci-fi classics. And if you're into schlock, he also directed Showgirls. So. <laughs> Verhoeven loves comic books in general. He loves the medium. So when he makes a movie, you, you can feel that influence in there in, in, for the best of reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Total Recall was definitely one of my favorite movies as a kid as well. It's just so bizarre and out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're, I'm, I'm looking through the manual of this game and I'm looking at the, the design and the themes and I'm like, yeah, this this really feels like somebody wanted to take RoboCop and make it cute and succeeded, but. So the manual is actually by um, a guy named MT um, and he did the, the box art. We hired him to do the box art, but we ended up having him do uh, all the text in the manual as well. So that's all written by him. You know, based on conversations that we all had together. So it's also very possible that he is a large RoboCop fan. I'm not sure. But uh, definitely uh, there's a kind of a critique of, you know, mega corporation capitalist society in there for sure, which I think is also uh, uh, exists in, in RoboCop and many cyberpunk uh titles it's almost baked into the formula and from yeah. what you're telling me with you guys all sitting around having a conversation about what the game should be and the themes it's like this feels like one of the better ways that uh, the older games came together that it was a small team who really cared about yes. it who had enough time to let the project fully cook before they released it yeah one thing that i really focused on a lot well didn't focus on a lot more accurately is uh is saying you know like we don't want to um we don't want to be defining anything that doesn't need to be defined in this world and so my way of thinking about that is um kind of influenced by a blog post that ellen wrote at one point in time where she was talking about how great the first alien movie is and how kind of lifeless the newer um yeah, they're all right, the newer uh, movies in that franchise are. And, and part of it, for us at least, is that in Alien, the whole thing is mystery, right? You have no idea what's going on and everything's very hard to define and understand. And once you have those worlds and you wanna like kind of define everything and like, oh, well, where does this come from? How did this work and this works and this works? The honest reality for me, at least, is that usually the mystery is a lot more interesting, exciting than the explanation of the mystery. Mm -hmm. um, and so as much as you can keep things kind of mysterious and vague, you know, you're leaving the space for the, the viewer to fill in the blanks themselves. And that can be a very interesting process. Um, so for example, like the second level of our game is titled The D Zone. And it is, you know, just kind of this mass of destroyed and dilapidated buildings. There's no lore in our universe for why that area is the way that it is. That's just um, what we've done. And, um, and yeah, and that lets the viewer kind of fill in the blanks themselves and kind of imagine where, uh, you know, what's going on. 
and um, any explanation that we could give would at best, you know, match a person's imagination, but at worst would, you know, take away from the mystery and, and the intrigue, I think. So yeah, we've definitely just tried to keep things super vague. And, um, and I think that's, you know, if I'm thinking about my favorite cyberpunk uh, titles, they all kind of have that in common, Blade Runner, The Matrix, you know, stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> it can be very hard to define exactly what the hell is going on in these worlds. And when you have a formula that works, you know, you have a, a Matrix, a RoboCop, a Terminator, whatever, when you, when you have something, you suddenly people love it. They want more of it. And that's natural. That, that's good. But you just have the, the same conflict you just mentioned that like, if I give you too much, you won't like it as much anymore. Yeah, Terminator is a great example of that. I mean, Terminator 1, Terminator 2, in my opinion, two of the best movies ever made. Um, Terminator 2 basically laid the groundwork for the modern blockbuster, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you try to find something that exists like that before it, you're not going to be very successful. Um, and yeah, and you know, it's hard to put your finger on what kind of sucks about Terminator 3, Terminator Salvation. I haven't even seen anything past that because I just don't even care anymore. But, um, you know, I'm like watching previews for one of the new ones. It's like, well, what if John Connor was actually a robot? And it's just like, you're trying too hard to come up with a twist and a thing and a, you know, it just is not, I don't know. It doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me. Um, I was having a conversation with somebody who was a big fan of this and as a little bit older than I am. So this was very relevant. Um, she had seen the original Terminator 2 when it first came out, like immediately, like within a day or two of its release. And we know now that the big twist is that Arnold plays the hero in this movie, whereas he played the villain in the previous movie. Mm -hmm. And what was explained to me that I did not get and I've never gotten is that because of the way the marketing for the movie really pushed that and if you didn't listen to it if you didn't know about that when you start the movie you're yes. told that two robots are going after this child and you don't know which one you're supposed to root for they're both kind of feeling bad at the beginning yes. sure um it was entertaining to watch arnold you know wreck a, a biker bar but <laughs> it's definitely does not feel like a good guy at that point in time it's true no and obviously he was the villain in the first so you're kind of led in that direction and then the the actual villain dresses up as a police officer which is kind of an ironic twist to kind of throw you off just a little bit more you mm -hmm. don't know until he turns to take the bullet for john that he is the good guy that is the moment you really get the reveal that is lost if you listen to any commercials whatsoever i know it's really weird how they did them they made the movie that way and then they did the marketing such that you could tell and i um you know i grew up in the in a very small area so I didn't get to go to the movies a whole lot as a kid so by the time I got to see Terminator 2 it had been well and truly spoiled that Arnold was the good guy for me um but yeah I find I find that those two movies are um just so great when I go back to them still to this day um mm -hmm. it's interesting to me Arnold was actually supposed to be the good guy in the first movie and then he, he met up with James Cameron and was telling James Cameron, oh, the guy who plays the robot, he's got to be like this, he's got to be like that, you know, he's got to, 
He's got to move this way. And as James Cameron is listening, he's like, oh, maybe you need to play that robot. <laughs> <laughs> so I like that a lot. Um, yeah. And as for filling in the details, that is something I'm sure all of us did, but I know I especially, when I look back at the original Super Mario Brothers or Super Mario 2 or 3 or the earlier, gen, I look at the what we call the simple graphics and I just think, no, they were effective graphics. They they gave you yes. just enough detail that you could make that world in your head, but you didn't get so much detail that it, you didn't have to do any work. And you, you've had such these large plans of, of what that must look like in the real world. I mean, I feel like Super Mario Brothers looks simple by today's standards, but in 1986 or 87, it was downright psychedelic. And mm -hmm. particularly Super Mario 3 was just like a, what is even happening here? You know, just so creative with the world. And I think people have a tendency to just kind of accept that, oh yeah, he just made this thing it's super simple. But when you think about that world it's actually so strange you're collecting mushrooms and fire you know it's like a very weird cartoony existence um i think that nintendo does a really really great job of making things that have a bright aesthetic and um can um appeal to people of all ages in a, in a really beautiful way. And the original Super Marios are a great example of that. Legend of Zelda is a great example of that. The Zelda series in general, you know, is kind of a perfect encapsulation of that. Doesn't need to be a game about space, space marines killing demons in order to be fun or interesting, you know? And that's not meant as a knock on Doom, which is a game that I also really loved when it came out. Um, but, you know, I think that there's this, uh, since Doom came out and Wolfenstein 3D, that there's kind of been a very, you know, inexorable march towards making things hardcore and badass. And like, don't get me wrong, I love Fallout, I love some of these games, but I think that there's something really special about the way that Nintendo um, is able to create these really beautiful worlds that are um, just weird and fun. And I don't know. Yeah, it's it's really special to me, honestly. Uh, Zelda is a really great example because you can see with that series as it progresses that Nintendo would take tiptoes in the direction of going towards something a little more realistic, a little more detailed, a little more fleshed out, and then realize I, we can only take this so far before we have to bounce back into the bright, happy fantasy based. Like even with Zelda two, it's like, okay, well we can make it, you know, we can have a, both a side scroller and a, a top down view, and we can add more realistic for the time graphics and, and mechanics. And that was great, but fans, wanted more of what the original was so we go back in that direction and then Absolutely. ocarina of time comes back and it's like well now we can make 3d and we can again increase the fight dynamics and let's only take that so far yeah you want to make sure that you keep the child childlike joy you know in, intact with a game like that and if you try to remove it then it's you know what is it you know um it's just um it's just a really important part of the formula, I think. At one point in time, I did find a, <clears throat> a batch of files online that were the original 
documents for Legend of Zelda. It's like Miyamoto wow. got together with whoever else was on the design team and they mapped the whole thing out on graph paper. Oh, it's it's really fascinating to me to look at the game development from you know that era and seeing how people actually worked on stuff um, as they were <laughs> quite impressive uh, people uh, to make it work, honestly, as well as it did. So you mentioned you were at PRGE not too long, a couple of days ago, actually, Yesterday. just getting back. Yeah, <laughs> that is one that I have wanted to hit for so long. I've heard nothing but great things about it. How did it go for you? I went pretty well. I, it's, um, I've been going, I think the first year I went and actually had a booth of my own was 2019. And we were getting the Kickstarter set up at that point in time. And um, then, of course, COVID happened. So did 2019, 2022, and 2023 have done there. And um, I, it's really great experience for me personally, because um, as a programmer, uh, you might assume, and you'd be right, that I'm kind of a hermit. I don't spend a whole lot of time going out into the world and making people play my game. So uh, just having a huge crowd of people who are interested in what I'm doing and excited about what I'm doing, um, you know, really is, uh, gives me a lot of inspiration to keep working on NES projects, which, you know, as you might imagine, is not the most financially lucrative uh, path to take in life. So it's kind of necessary to have a level of, of feedback from people around you in order to want to keep doing it, right? And uh, at PRGE, it's great because you can see, you know, all these young kids will pick the game up and just get hooked on it immediately. And um, <clears throat> yeah, it's just a really great experience to share it with people and to be able to watch them play it and enjoy it, which is not something I get to do very often. Um, that I've had to, I've been to a bunch of retro gaming conventions, but not, I said, not PRGE. And I keep hearing that this is kind of the convention people go to when they're really still into just the love of the hobby. And they're not really getting into the collecting and flipping aspects so much. It's really about just the experience. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a, a huge collector community there for sure, but it also is just, um, I feel like it's probably the largest retro game expo in America. I bring 10,000 plus people in and they have all sorts of stuff going on. There's the Tetris World Championships were happening uh, yesterday and <clears throat> it's pretty funny. I wandered over there. It's like a bunch of 15 year old kids now <laughs> playing Tetris on the NES and it's kind of wild to see that it still has such a following. But uh, yeah, it's the sort of thing where you could definitely just kind of casually have an interest in retro gaming in general and really find a lot of stuff to do there. Uh, they have a huge open arcade and so on and so forth. So it's a lot of fun. Um, <clears throat> I often don't get to really interact with all of that because I'm at my booth and talking to people about my game but um yeah last yesterday I actually found um in terms of people who are into collecting I actually found the first computer that I ever owned was there um <clears throat> obviously the same exact one but <clears throat> uh the model that we had and 
Um, yeah, just all these great, you know, working systems from the 80s that people have got up and running, old Apple computers from that time period, you know. Wow. Um, so there's a bunch of really cool stuff there that's even if you're not a collector and you're not trying to, you know, spend $400 on a computer from the 80s, like, um, it's still really cool to see. And uh, they have, you know, various groups of game developers who come in and just have their games on display and me being one of them. But, you know, um, also there's like the whole Atari age contingent was there. And I guess Atari, the company, I didn't know this until yesterday, Atari, the company bought Atari age, the website. That is true. Yes, they did. Yeah. And so they were there as Atari age. They had a huge booth set up with all the games that people, you know, all the homebrews that people are making for Atari and stuff these days. So that was cool to see. Um, and they're there with their new system as well and trying to promote that. And I don't know, just in general, it's a, it's a great way to kind of keep on top of the scene in general and um, what's happening basically see who's working on new projects and so on and so forth and for me that's what it's always been about is just seeing the, the giving people the platform to put out their projects get them in front of an audience put it in their hands i'm you know you get a chance to actually sign your cartridge if somebody wants that mm -hmm. when you see those kids there playing tetris at 15 years old realizing that when they were born the current system was like the xbox 360 it's... is this <laughs> do you really feel like they're they're really getting into it just as much as we did they're having the same experience or is this something different for them well i mean i think it's in many ways they're into it even deeper than we were when we cool. were young because like you know when i was uh i was a teenager in the 1990s i still had my nes in the late 90s i used to play tetris a lot i was very good like people would come over to my house to watch me play Tetris. Um, and we used to have conversations like, oh, am I the best Tetris player in the world? Oh, there's gotta be someone better than me, you know? Um, and I ended up looking it up years later, what were the highest scores around that time period? And I would have been not the top player, but top 10, top 20, somewhere in there, if I had been submitting my scores. And, <laughs> and today I would be like top 1,000, maybe top 10,000, somewhere in there. Cause there's all these kids who are just unbelievable and they have um i mean for me i guess i would say it's that they're almost more into it than we were because they have to go out and find a crt and you know what i mean they need to like mm -hmm. actually get all of these components together that are not easy to find anymore um all to play a 40 year old version of tetris 35 year old version of tetris right like it's just a little um <clears throat> It's fascinating and then they're traveling to Oregon to compete against other people which you know I never would have never would have even thought about doing as a kid um <laughs> I don't know that that even existed but it definitely would not have been something that was possible for me to do so yeah I don't know it's kind of exciting for me just to see um <clears throat> people just you know still getting joy out of these old systems and um and to me, Tetris is one of the most, um, just like almost a meditative experience in a way. Mm -hmm. it's, it's one of those games that when you play it for an hour and you try to go to sleep that night, you're playing Tetris in your head. Do you know what I mean? It's just, uh, it's such a, 
it's an amazing game, honestly, when you consider what it's made out of, what its requisite components are, you know? Um, it's, it, you know, graphically it's garbage. Um, you could make it with X's and O's if you wanted to. Uh, there's, it's just, it's, yeah, it's like a definition of simplicity in a way. Um, <clears throat> I love the fact that you know that all the all the blocks have four squares to them, and it's all the different arrangements that you could make out of four squares. You know, it's just such a simple system that's so well designed. <clears throat> when you play Tetris and you're trying to land those blocks, you, no matter what the screen looks like, no matter what the arrangement is, there's really about three different moves you can make over and over, and you have to decide in a tenth of a second which one you want to do in that moment. And for me, doing that a couple thousand times in a row over the course of five minutes gets very relaxing. And, and people yeah. say it makes them nervous. Like, no, it's like the same three moves over and over, and that will calm me down if I'm not feeling good. I tell you, it really does. I was watching a video many years ago when I first became aware that people were doing Tetris competitively. Uh, the guy who was world championship for a long time, Jonas Newberger, something like that, actually died suddenly a couple years ago, but he was the world champion um, every year for many years. And I was watching this video where he was explaining Tetris. And one of the things that he said that always stuck with me is, you know, people will say, oh, we got to fit all this stuff into my garage. We got to Tetris it. <laughs> you got to rearrange everything so that it fits. And he's like, that's not Tetris. Tetris is doing that fast. <laughs> like, it's not about how much stuff you can fit into one space. It's about how fast you can do that. And I thought that was all, I just thought that was really funny. Because um, <clears throat> it's true. It's all just about the immediacy of it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Tetris strategy is kind of a misnomer because for the most part, you can't set up a play in Tetris. You have to respond to a play. Yeah, you're you're dealing with RNG. It's all random. Um, and particularly Nintendo Tetris. I understand the newer versions are like, you're guaranteed to get a straight line every so often or whatever, which mm. kind of takes away from the complexity of the situation, doesn't it? It does. Um yeah. Well, when it comes to essential games, I want to put Project Blue in that list of games that anybody who's playing an NES probably should have in their collection. It's really worth your time. And if you don't have an NES, it's available on, I know, the Switch and the Xbox. Is it on PS4 and Steam? We're hoping to make that happen. There's no promises yet, but um, basically we have published, uh, sorry, have partnered with a publisher. Um to do the xbox and the switch versions and so what those are is basically just the game project blue uh kind of embedded inside of an emulator um that then plays on either the xbox or the switch respectively and i just think um they were not quite prepared to do the ps5 version but i think that they um have that Kind of in the pipeline it's something that we're hoping to make happen i can't promise it but both the steam edition and the ps5 uh, are hopefully coming in the future 
Um, as far as Steam goes, in my opinion, you might even be better off, honestly, just buying the NES uh, ROM file and running it in an emulator on your computer. Um, because that's what it's going to be anyway at the end of the day. I'm not going to rewrite all the code to run on a PC. There's just no point. Um, so, yeah, I think that might actually be um, very equivalent to the Steam release for people who are, you know, technically, technically capable of running it in an emulator, which realistically anybody should be able to do. It's not hard. Um, and those emulators, you know, they often have, uh, if you get a good one like Messin, it'll, uh, it'll add actually features to the game, which can be useful. So you can, for example, create a save state in Messin. Um, and the, probably the biggest complaint I get about Project Blue from people is that there's no way to save your progress in the game. If you turn your game off, you got to start over from level one. What I always say to those people is that, you know, this game is modeled after games that work that way. And it's that way for a reason. It's part of the game design. I understand why you feel like it shouldn't be, but at the end of the day, the idea is that you play the game, you get as far as you can. Eventually you get to a place that's very hard. You get frustrated, turn this machine off. You go to something else for a while, you come back a day later, you try again, you start at scratch and you say, Right from the beginning, you'll notice you've got, you've gained a lot of skill from your last pit play session. And the second time you play it, you'll be able to get further. And that's how Super Mario 3 worked. That's how Super Mario 1 worked. You know, mm -hmm. you had to um, painstakingly make these improvements in the game. And for me personally, the way that the game was designed was to reward that sort of play style. So if you've ever played a game like Sonic 2 is a great example, um, you know, where the first time you play through an area, you're kind of plotting and looking at all the stuff and trying to figure out where to go and very slowly avoiding the enemies and everything. When you're playing Sonic 2 for the 10th time, you get to the you know, first level of the game you know, with any luck, you're just pressing the button to the right and holding it there and jumping when you need to. And it's this very satisfying experience of racing through a level. And for me personally, that's very rewarding. Um, and so Project Blue is kind of designed that same way where at first you might have to really take your time and be careful. When I'm playing Project Blue, I'm sprinting through everything all the time, <laughs> pretty much nice. nonstop. And, you know, if I have to take damage to, to get past an area, I just do because I know where the hearts are. I know where to collect and get more life. And, you know, I think a well-designed platformer has that feel to it where you can really, once you get the feel of the game, uh, it clicks for you and you, can, and you can really just kind of be rewarded for that in being able to run through these levels at top speed. Um, one of our play testers is a speedrunner. Um, so one of the guys who was testing the game for us was ridiculously good at all of this sort of stuff. And uh, last I checked, he did have the, uh, the world record for the fastest Project Blue victory out there. It's, um, yeah, he can beat it way faster than I can. <laughs> well I'm just getting my toes wet in the 
the game now. I'm just starting to get through the first couple stages, and I personally would say, yeah, I see where this is going here. I do see myself getting a little bit better each time, and that is really rewarding. It's not. It's a game where I feel like when I lose, there's a reasonable chance I can go back and try again. There's never a cheap death. It's just a death I have to learn from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's definitely one way that I try to definitely... Um, one way in which I would say our level design is very different from a game like Battle Kid, for example, where I've never played Battle Kid, but I've watched some videos of people getting very angry at it, where it definitely feels like sometimes there's just a little thing that's going to trick you at the beginning of a place and kill you. And then you have to know that that's there. And mm -hmm. I try to avoid that. I try to make it like if you die, it's because you failed to uh, account for something. It's because you failed to, you know, press the button at the right time. Yeah. Um, not because something hidden out of nowhere jumps out of the bushes and kills you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's the, the area where it definitely succeeds the most at, and it, it's a very successful game. Um, so people are going to pick it up and the digital shop of their choice, provided they have the right platform. And can they still get a physical cartridge? We do have physical cartridges online. Um, I have a big cartel site. It's projectblue.bigcartel. You can get it there. But there's also, um, we've got some publishers. So if you're not in America, you'd probably be better off buying it from a company called Broke Studio. Um, it's brokestudio.fr is their website. And um, they are based in France and they have... Uh, a pretty good collection of games, actually. The company was founded by the guy who did uh, Twin Dragons. And they also have, I believe they have Nebs and Debs, which is a great homebrew, and they have Micro Mages and some other stuff that I'm not as familiar with because uh, I have a hard time keeping up with the scene, as I mentioned earlier. But uh, all those are kind of early titles that were inspirational to me and they're all available on that website as well and then uh in america um there's also mega cat studios has copies of the game so we've got a few different publishers um yeah we also have a famicom release as well it's done oh. by first press games um yeah so I'm going to make sure all that gets to the show notes on my website, aaronbossig.com. Where can people follow your adventures and the adventures of your team on the web? Uh, the best place to follow us is actually to uh, follow Ellen, my graphics artist. She did all the pixel art in Project Blue. Her online handle is frankengraphics, uh, F-R-A-N-K-E-N, as in Frankenstein, uh, frankengraphics. And she has a Twitter account. Um, it's probably the best place to see um, where her and I are working on new stuff. I also, um, you know, have a Twitter account, but I don't really use it. So I probably will be uh, mainly uh, doing uh, promotion through the artists that I'm working with because uh, when someone posts a beautiful new pixel art uh, piece to the web, it often gets a lot of engagement and that, you know, gives you followers and lets more people see your stuff. And as a programmer, you know, when you post, oh, hey guys, I just optimized the collision routine, 
no one really cares. Um, and it's very hard to get engagement on that sort of post. So it's kind of frustrating as a programmer sometimes because when you're working on a new project, you can't really brag about it too much because there's not that much exciting about the work that you're doing for people who aren't programmers. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, I'm working with Ellen on a new game, but it's several years off. And I'm also working with an artist named Muji, M-U-G-I, on a game right now as well. So you can follow him on Twitter. Um, and uh, that's the guy who's behind Dimension Shift. If people are familiar with that, probably most most listeners probably aren't, but that was a uh, an NES homebrew that never actually got released, but had a very uh, promising demo at one point in time that had people very excited. Um, and so he's got great art as well, and we're working on a, a kind of Shatterhands type game. Cool. Well, Donnie, thank you so much for doing this. I would be glad to have you back anytime. And I suggest everybody follow you and your team because this game is worth keeping your eyes on. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. Have a good day. You too. <clears throat>